This is an ad read for the company Belay. Belay, it's a company. Please use them. Oh, Shane, you completely blew it. That was the worst ad read of your career, and you wanted to nail it. Belay's a great company, and you completely blew it. That was too boring. And you know why I blew it, folks? I blew it because I've got too many menial tasks to do. I've got to go to the grocery store. I've got to take the garbage out. I've got all these little things that if somebody else was helping me, I could have focused, and I could have nailed that ad read. Can you relate to that? Well, if you can, guess what? I ironically have a company that can help you out, and that company is Belay. Listen, for over a decade, Belay has helped match busy leaders, business owners, and entrepreneurs with high-quality executive assistance. Their U.S.-based specialists will help take care of the little details so that you can focus on what matters most. Send emails out. You got to keep, you know, keep your calendar up. Do some research, client communication. That is just the tip of the iceberg in the list of things a Belay executive assistant can do for you. And that list, believe me, goes on and on and on. So if you're wondering how to get started with an assistant or what Belay can do for you, we have a free resource just for listeners of this podcast. Text the word GOLF to 55123 to download the top 25 things an executive assistant can do for you. That's G-O-L-F to 55123. And let me tell you something, I'm about to do it myself because maybe if I get one of these executive assistants from Belay, I can nail this ad read next time. For allied rivals, all roads lead to Rome. And eternal glory. Hello and welcome to the Ryder Cup Radicals podcast hosted by the Sambuca Boys. I'm Luke Cudanine back in the chair this week here with Shane Ryan, who is braving through a bit of an injury this morning. How are you doing, Shane? I'm good. I don't, I hopefully the voice is completely normal. It kind of sounds normal to me, but I bit my tongue incredibly hard last yesterday afternoon while eating a banh mi sandwich. <laughs> and I, I actually offered you guys pictures. I was a little hurt that nobody said, yes, please send me the picture of your tongue. <laughs> but for la- all of last night, I couldn't speak normally. And I still feel like it's kind of weird. Um, but the wound is unbelievable. I've bitten my tongue before. Everybody has. It has never been anything more than mild. This is like I, I just gouged out a thing of my... It's insane. It, I don't know how I did it. It's embarrassing. Uh, but I, maybe I can kind of get it off my chest a little here with you guys. I mean, a real testament to that barn me sandwich, though, that you were just going to town on it so aggressive. <laughs> it's, like, it's embarrassing on that front, too. Like, oh, this guy was so eager to eat. Like, oh, this fat boy couldn't, couldn't stop eating so hard that he bit his own tongue off. And then, of course, the sorry. And then, of course, the third man in the chair. (laughs) You know why he's thrown off a little? It's because this is the first time ever I've not seen him wear his North Berwick hat. Berwick hat. Excuse me. How how are you doing in your Cincinnati Reds hat, Joel Beale? Doing good. Reds. uh, What uh, two weeks left? Right in the playoff hunt. I, I'm yeah, and more importantly, I have a 40 ounce coffee, so no no sleepy accusations going on here. Um, I, I, I guess I was just thrown off though because I feel like Shane finally settled the our golfers athletes debate, and uh, we have a resounding <laughs> answer to that, and it's no. <laughs> I'm just proud you would consider me a golfer. I, I don't think I even deserve the title golfer, much less athlete. Oh, but. A, a 70s 70s shooting golfer. If 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 uh, viewers will remember, we well, know. But in all seriousness, Joel, I feel like today was a big day uh, against the sleepy Joel Beal moniker because not only are you here bright and early at eight thirty a.m. at the time of recording, but you also checked uh, the podcast status at seven fifteen in the morning. Well, yeah, I wasn't even on Slack then. You you were there checking in on your friend Shane's tongue, so I appreciate that. It was more out of concern for Shane's health than any <clears throat> any devotions to this podcast or work or anything like that. It was more for friendship. All right. Well, good to that. hear. Yeah. Um, of course, Ryder Cup is next week. We're all very excited. We're going to head to head to Italy soon. Um, I was on vacation last week. I took my took my child to Disney World, and I feel like I did a bit of Italy scouting that I wanted to report back because I in the Epcot 
mm-hmm. portion of Disney World. They have an Italy, like, you know, Ville, basically. It's so, ju- just like the country, from what I've heard. I mean, just like the country, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like people have gone there and said, I don't even need to go anymore to Italy. I've been to, I've, been to, I've, got, I've done it. Got Got some rec- got some restaurant recommendations, and I didn't get any sambuca, but I did get lemoncello. So I wanted to shout out lemoncello, which is just delicious. Have you boys had lemoncello? I have some in the fridge right now. It's delicious. Truly, truly is like a sugary, lemony, alcoholy delight. I've so. had limonada. I don't know if that's if that counts. It's not alcohol. It's um, you, what, what's the? What, it's like a bump, like a fizzy water. <laughs> It's just lemonade, just pronounced weird. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, wait, Shane, are you trying to say lemonade, but your tongue is interfering with... Lemonade, lemonade, That was last night. That was me all last night. I'm like, good night, honey. (laughs) It was impossible to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, I I don't think I've had limoncello. Sambuca, I hadn't even heard of. Uh, Limoncello, I've never had. So I'm I'm looking forward to expanding my horizons here with you guys in a couple weeks. Or in one week. Big time. All right. Well, we should probably start talking about golf, I guess, because this is a Ryder Cup golf Ugh. podcast. <laughs> so um, you guys are going to have to guide me through this because I was, as I said, in Disney World last week. But uh, we had you know decent number of, of Ryder Cuppers on both sides playing in two different events, um, obviously less so in the Fortinet. But uh, we had all the Ryder Cuppers playing in the BMW Championship out at Wentworth. Um, so let's just, I mean, I guess, Joel, what were your takeaways from that tournament? And does it bode anything? Or were there any clues there that we can expose heading into Ryder Cup week based on how everyone performed? I mean, certainly you don't want to see your guys out of form going into a tournament, right? Um it's, I think if you're Luke Donald, um, the, I think the, the guy you really want to see going in the right direction um, was the Tommy Fleetwood. I think even though he wasn't necessarily struggling, I think it's just been a, it'd been a couple of weeks since Fleetwood had really put everything together. Um, I think the, I think Aber continuing continuing his hot streak was uh, really I don't say surprising, but just more more underline that what we're seeing of this guy is not an aberration. He is the real deal. Um, certainly having Patton make a nice little run there on Sunday uh, was good. And even Rom, Rom kind of very quietly had a, had a weird second half to his season. So um, I, I, it's hard to make a lot of correlations between Wentworth and I think what we're going to see in Rome. Uh, at the same time, uh, if you want your guys trending in the right direction, I don't, I don't, you couldn't ask for better results if you're Luke Donald. Yeah, no, I agree. You know, let's just uh, if if we look at the leaderboard, obviously Ryan Fox and New New Zealand New Zealander is that is that the correct moniker? Either way, he he came out on top. And then behind him was just a raft of Ryder Cupers: Terrell Hatton in second, John Rahm in fourth, Hovland in fifth, Fleetwood in sixth, McElroy in seventh, Aberg in tenth. He was leading after three rounds, I believe. Right, kind of stumbled at the Sunday seventy six, but. Yeah, played well. Straka in 10th, and then Fitzpatrick and Lowry down in 18th. So what, that's 9 of the 12. I think all 12 made the cut, I saw, but 9 of the 12 inside the top 20, which is pretty, pretty solid showing there. Um, yeah, Shane, what what do you make of it? Are you, are, you, uh, are, you, are you fearing in your boots for the oncoming European onslaught based on these performances? No, I'm happy that, you know, in double-A golf, that a bunch of the Ryder Cup European teams did pretty well. That's great for them. Uh, I'm sure all the, all the Europeans are thrilled. They're good. No, you know, I'm looking at, look, Ludwig Eiberg had a, uh, <laughs> I think I'll never pronounce his name correctly. That that was a, a complete butchering. But I think Eiberg, you know, uh, had, a, had a lead going into Sunday. He shot one of the worst rounds of the day. You're looking at him as potentially being a huge choker. That's got to be a major concern for Luke Donald. Uh, the, the rest of the team, the rest of the team, got defeated by someone from New Zealand. Uh, you know, it's it was a bad week for Europe. I mean, it was a really tough. No, I'm obviously kidding. Um, no, they did a good job. Uh, you know, I it seemed like Aberg was going to win again, which is like, I mean, he's doing everything. We're going to see this on the American side too. Everything that Luke Donald did is sort of being borne out. I think. Um, I do remember. So I had my friend's Ryder Cup trip this weekend, so I didn't follow it too closely. But uh, it is my recollection that Moronk was close to the lead after, I think, after Friday. Uh, definitely after Thursday, and I think he was still there Friday. And I was like, man, what a 
badass thing that Mod, would be. Yes, if he came I out and just too. won the BMW PGA, just like that would have been. I mean, it wouldn't have like influenced anything that happened in Italy, but it would have been a kind of dagger, uh, a little bit to Luke Donald, just or like a statement. It would have been one of the all-time great statements. But he kind of cooled off on the weekend. Maybe, maybe in some small way proved Luke Donald's point a little bit. But yeah, it was it was pretty fascinating to see that. Um, but I think good for Luke Donald just from a PR standpoint that Shane Lowry had a good. Uh, you know, solid tournament. And uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they are rounding into form, man. I mean, it's, I don't know if you could script the beginning, uh, the, the run up to the Ryder cup. I don't know if you could script it any better for the Europeans compared, especially when yeah. you considered again, we, we keep saying how dire everything looked like a year and a half ago. Yeah, man, the Moronk popping into contention, especially cause Hogard played awfully in his first round. I don't know making the cut, but he was the last man, like of the 12 Ryder Cuppers, he was in last place. Mm. And for him to just be stinking up and wrong, popping into the lead. Like, and of course that would have been the dynamic, I think with Aberg winning, it was going to be Nikolai was going to be the first guy out. Uh, of course it was Moronk who's the last guy, but man, that would have just been, that would have been an awkward one for Donald to have to, but of course that doesn't matter. The one interesting thing I wanted to pick your brain about was I kind of thought it was a weird one that uh, the European Ryder Cuppers had to play this week. I bet secretly most of them would have preferred to schedule be different for them to just kind of chill. But I did talk, I ended up talking myself into this being a good thing, of course, because we just saw all these, for lack of a better word, pods um playing together the first two rounds and i feel like there's some intangible benefit there um so you know the the pairings that we saw was aberg rory hovland they all played together the first two rounds fleetwood lowry stracker played together and ram hatton hogart all played together um so i guess joel like how big a clue is that that these are going to be some variation within those groups is going to be what we see in terms of pairings in Rome. I mean, is, or is this kind of more of a less scientific thing and more of a general team chemistry thing? I'm, I'm just smiling because I'm imagining your kid at Epcot and you're just sitting there like, I can't believe, like, what, what are these pods saying? <laughs> it comes over, hey, what, what's going on? I'm like, I was just, <laughs> man, I don't know if Abar, Aberg and Hogar are the right match. Um, <laughs> Do you know the meme with the husband the husband and wife in bed together and the wife is like rolled over going, he's probably thinking about another woman and the husband's thinking about something else? Just imagine Luke with a bubble of like, Hoiberg and Aberg, is that going to work? Hoigard and Aberg, is that going to work? Straka Larry is not one I had on the tip. Sorry, Joel, go ahead. Please go. Well, it's funny. I do want to touch on something, what you just mentioned, Luke. It's It is kind of a weird one to have all these guys play that close to the Ryder Cup, but at the same time, with a meaningful event, it's such a big event. Um, at the same time, if you look at the U.S. side, really it's just Justin Thomas is the only guy outside, you know, that's going to have a, a, a competitive start in the in the previous month heading into Rome. Um, so I think if you're trying to compare, like, which would you rather have? I think I'd rather have the European side of these guys getting some type of competitive reps um but before Rome I know it's a long season and some of these guys need some rest um but yeah I, I did see that point brought up a couple of times like is are they kind of running these guys in the ground I think it was a, I think it's a it was a smart move in terms of where the schedule the scheduling was and how this is going to play out in, in terms of pods yeah I mean certainly you can read the tea leaves there um the little I heard I think it was more about just kind of getting these guys conversing a little bit they like it's it's such a golden opportunity you wouldn't want to necessarily pay play you know put rory with Moronki, right or something like that guys who aren't in it um yeah i don't know how much personally though it, how much we can glean from it um I, I think it's we more have to wait till that monday tuesday in rome um i i i just i, I was very very worried that but um i think it was just more getting those guys in the, in the same conversations and getting them acclimated to the to the what the team room's going to be like rather than trying to extrapolate any type of pairings but i don't know shane what shane what did you take from that yeah you can extrapolate a little bit and we'll get a lot more from the practice rounds um at the actual Ryder cup but i think in general it it seems to me like luke donald is back on the mcginley bjorn uh sort of template uh where it, everything is very very highly organized people are really pleased with him uh, on the European side, how he's doing a little bit different from Harrington, a little bit different from Darren Clark. There, you know, there's 
there's guys who are real system men and who really believe in the system and you know work the system that has worked so well for for Europe for so long. Uh, and then there's guys who are, you know, I'm not saying they're like Nick Faldo Mavericks, but you know, Patrick Carrington. There were some different things about him. He reduced the number of captains' picks. He got kind of taken by surprise by the the ball issue the week of. There are these little indications that he didn't. He wasn't quite as hyper obsessively organized as all those guys. And I remember talking to Patrick Carrington and him saying that, you know, the standard McGinley set was a really hard one to equal, you know, and like almost like, you know, McGinley did us no favors, future captains, uh, because of how organized he was. But Bjorn was also like that. And it seems like Donald is. So I, I my guess is by the time, you know, look, Ryder cup week gets long, doesn't it? When you're there covering it, it gets really long. So you end up reading so many tea leaves, I think by the time Friday comes around, we're going to have a very good idea of who's playing together for both teams because I think both captains are going to show us quite a bit with their pairings and because there's no reason to hide it. You know, it's like you could, it doesn't really matter if the other team knows your pairings. If they knew the order, maybe that would help them a little bit, but knowing the pairings is fine. So, yeah, I think really long winded answer to that question. Yes, I think that's all good intelligence that we saw at the BMW and we're going to see even more to the point that I bet we'll probably do a pretty good job of predicting the opening pairings come Thursday night. Yeah. It's interesting. I always, well, I always find it interesting because there's some real lessons of leadership stuff here when you see, because when you're a player, right, your formula for success is just being a control freak maniac, you know, just, you got to do it yourself. You got to figure it out. You got to put in the hours yourself. You really have to like micromanage your own game and you have to do it in practice. You have to do it, play everything you do. Right. Um, then you get into this captaincy role, which is a, a real like CEO role in many ways, you know, like you have an entire system around you and your goal is to kind of guide it along while not screwing it up. And McGinley, you know, Shane, you wrote about that a lot in your book, was like a true master at it. And it kind of reminds me of something I remember Jeff Bezos saying, uh, obviously CEO of Amazon, but he was talking about how his job effectively is to make a, a, a small amount of like high impact, high quality decisions. <laughs> you know, like that's effectively right. his job. That he's basically got like two, three to two to five, let's say, decisions he has to make a day. And he needs those to be, he needs to make more good decisions of those than bad. And that's kind of it. Because it's very big picture, set the strategic direction, let the team kind of do the thing. And it feels like Donald does have a kind of demeanor that helps him do that. You know, he's listening to the stats, guys. He's folding them in. He's fronting up the tough decisions. He's guiding everyone along. Um, yeah. And I don't know. I've been quite impressed with him, uh, even though I think we all have a soft spot for like a real charismatic leader, which maybe Donald is a bit more you know, low-key methodical, but I don't know. I've been impressed by it. And I think Zach Johnson in some ways is like the same, is the same thing on the U.S. side, right? Like very methodical, very disciplined, not like a rousing leader. And it's just an interesting one. It's it's interesting to see these players, I guess is what I'm trying to say, in a very different setting. Um, and then just touching on the pairings, one thing I forgot to mention was if Rose Fitzpatrick McIntyre were the other, was the other group. And touching on that like some of these guys like i could absolutely see rose fitzpatrick playing together but then like the one that threw me off a bit was that aberg rory hovland pairing because those seem like guys you would want to split up you know it doesn't seem like you'd want to necessarily trot out rory and hovland i guess maybe an alternate shot but maybe not like it's just and it goes back to this question of like the decision of whether to stack your best players or to split your best players but again, I may just be reading too much into that. With Rory, um, I, I think, you know, McGinley had the quote on the Golf Channel the other day that Rory has not found his place in the Ryder Cup yet. His record doesn't reflect the kind of player he is. He's basically like 500 or, or slightly below. Uh, and he hasn't found his partner. That's the really big thing, right? It hasn't, you know, like there's no Spanish Armada for Rory. There's no partner. There's no Woosnam, um uh, who is Woosnam's partner for anyway, you, you know, Westwood Clark, that kind of thing. There's no, yeah, yeah, yeah. he hasn't found that yet. And I think Rory is the kind of player that a little bit like tiger in the Ryder cup. He's not necessarily the take a guy under your wing type player. I think you want him to feel secure. And interestingly, I thought of Aberg for him, even though that seems like a take a guy under your wing. Aberg is so good and so talented 
that I, I just wonder if you put him with Rory, if it just infuses them both with confidence, especially, you know, in four ball, um, that, you know, one of us is going to make birdie on every hole. We're going to be unbelievable type deal. And if that's the kind of partner that, you know, maybe Rory shouldn't be looking for an elder statesman for him. Maybe we should be looking for a young guy who's going to be on the team for years that maybe for the next three to four Ryder Cups, these two guys are end up becoming some amazing team. You know, and if the stats guys give the green light on that, I can see how tempting that would be. I do want to add just one thing, Luke, when you mentioned the what have we learned so far from Luke Donald, just because I think this is a really important point that's been pointed out to me from a couple of players and even a couple of player managers. And this is very weird given their age difference, but I do think the interesting thing with Luke Donald is I think he kind of, he's in this weird purgatory right now, right? It has been for a couple of years where he's still a competitive player and yet he, his time has kind of passed, right? on what he is is like, like he's the head of top 20 this year he's he's actually made a lot more cuts than you think but like for the most part he kind of is what he is so he can kind of focus on the captain thing harrington was in this really weird spot two years ago interesting spot i should say where he was 50 so he was getting himself ready for the champions tour and yet he also had this really nice run where i think he finished fourth at the pga and he was kind of chasing this like hey this might be my last great shot so like weirdly i think he was kind of more focused on his on his play then maybe i don't want to say he was derelict in his duties but at the same time like he was kind of a guy divided um i think donald is very he kind of knows what he is now on that front um but i at the way shane off of what you just said it's funny the i was looking at possible rory pairings i think you're right i think aberg is such a good it kind of allows rory to be the alpha a little bit, right? Uh, something where uh, if, if you look at maybe the transition of guys off the team this year, in that vacuum, Rory is going to have to be a de facto leader, whether he wants to or not. I think we've always looked at him as the emotional fulcrum from outside, and you get really close to it, and he kind of took a more of a backseat, at least in 2021 and 2018. Now that's kind of thrust him in this role. I think Rom is very much in that, that spot, too. I think he's more of a follow-by-example guy. Um, but in terms of if you're trying to look who would be a, a good personality pair, I think Aberg is right there. I also kind of wonder like is maybe Fitzpatrick a guy that would that would pair really well with, with Rory just because they, they seem to have a little bit of a kinship. And I think I don't want to say Fitzpatrick knows his place, but I think there's a very clear hierarchy of who who's number one in that front. So um yeah, it, it, it's funny because you can go down the list. I mean, listen, there are very few guys that wouldn't seem like good pair uh, pairings for Rory, but yeah, the Aberg one, and man, I think that would also break golf Twitter if Rory and Aberg get rolled out. Um, mm. and also to probably really, uh, in terms of getting the fans behind Rory, I mean, they're already going to be behind Rory, but man, that, that just seems like a electrifying combo for the Europeans to roll out. The one thing I've been thinking a lot about recently, and this kind of goes back into our like captain thing and our pairings thing is that, like the decision of whether to pair two guns together. So like Aberg and Rory made me think about it because like the second you do that, even if the stats say it's a good idea, whatever, you have this weird intangible benefit of like the, uh, the, the, the temptation for the US team to want to claim a scout, you know, like, oh, we can take these two guys. And there's this weird like counter, counter effect almost where like, you know, on paper, I agree. Aberg and Rory is like kind of a home run in either format. You know, like Rory can be the the seasoned vet, but also have the the fullback he needs, quite frankly, to play with a really good, consistent player. But that's going to break golf Twitter. Everyone's going to talk about it. There's a lot of hype around that pairing, and what Homer and Morikawa floating in under the radar playing those two, they would want to beat those guys so badly. And mm -hmm. if they do, there is like this weird intangible Ryder cup tone shift momentum thing that happens. And like balancing that is a really tricky decision because on one side, you've got like what the things on the paper say, you know, the numbers, the, this, the, that, the reasons. And then the, the other is this like, Oh yeah, but you also kind of spot them a, a plus ten motivation, <laughs> motivation yeah. quality. It, yeah, it's it's like the the best thing that can happen is what you expect, and the downside is just so great. And there's just so many examples of this not working. I know 
maybe we de- default to the 2004 Phil uh, Phil Tiger, but like just as bad really was, and it gets it gets lost in time just because of the Sunday comeback. But you know, Crenshaw kind of panicked in '99 by putting I think it was Tiger and Duvall out together in that afternoon session, and that was a big. I think it was Clark and I think it was let me double check. I think it was Clark and Westwood beat them, and all of a sudden it was a six to two advantage in Europe, and that really kind of set the tone for the rest of the day. Now, granted, Saturday happened and kind of uh, or Sunday happened, and it's been lost to history. But it just seems like the downside is so great, um, especially if you're at home. I think maybe if you're on the road, it, it gives you a little you have a little bit more creative latitude to do it because you're kind of playing with house money, but. If you're home and, and you're Europe, and again, the depth already is not the greatest. I just don't think you have the creative license to do that. It's interesting that we're talking this way about Ludwig Aberg, right? It's like we're putting him in a conversation like he's Rory or Rom, right? What we're, what we're talking about here is more directly applicable to if you did Rory and Rom, where you're like, oh boy, that puts a massive target. But we're talking about if you put Rory and, and Aberg together, that oh man, what a what a scalp that would be if the Americans could could beat them, and it's like wow, we're, how quickly Aberg has been elevated in the in the greater discourse. I almost think you, I don't know if I totally agree that he would he would quite qualify for that. That it, but I guess it's all perception, isn't it? So if you guys are saying it, and if people think that, and if it if it put this bright thing out for the Americans, it's like ooh yeah, you think that pairing's good? Wait till Homa and Morikawa completely take them down. And then maybe it is. Maybe perception is reality, even though the guy literally has won one event in his entire career and has only been a pro for like a few months. So right now, I think Aberg is in is kind of in the middle of a very uh, unusual Venn diagram of both really good and slightly overrated. You know, like usually, and I and I don't mean that in a disrespect to Aberg. I just mean that in the sense that like. Clearly, we all have eyes. This guy looks like he's going to be really, really, really good. Like, mm-hmm. super high ceiling, potentially. But we just, you know, he's really new to the scene. And it's hard to know what to make of his his college career, when he's clearly was so good for college, and he's done some really impressive things as a pro golf. But, like, he's a potential guy. He's a guy who looks really good, who we think could be truly great. And so that's what I mean, where it's like, when we and then when I say he's overrated, in, in it's in the sense that we are literally talking about him in the same breath as Rory McIlroy, maybe the best player of his generation, right? Talking about him being one of the leaders of the European team as a rookie, like these are like Donald talked about him making the next seven Ryder Cups, Hovland, Rory all talked about him being a generational player. I mean, this is so much like hype around it. And I'm not saying it's not deserved, but it is just a, it's a lot. It's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of everything. So yeah, I agree. There's, it, it has my head spinning a little bit, but that said, um, he is, I think that's going to manifest itself in that, like the U S guys being asked about him, you know, and then like those guys wanted to put him in his place i think um and especially when you pair him with a guy like rory so it's a it's a really fascinating dynamic unfolding here um with this with this player it's also interesting that we you know we're talking about it from the rory perspective you know who would be a good partner for him from the aberg perspective it's, it's still a very interesting question of is does rory function like a security blanket for him like is you know do you want to put him with someone very big and prominent, or does it add pressure on him? Like, don't let Roy McIlroy down, right? Like, don't be the guy who, who you know, stinks it up with the best player and, and gives the U.S. that chance to collect the big scalp. Um, it's, I'm sure it depends so much on the personality, and we, there's a lot we don't know about him, but I, I, I wouldn't know how to answer that question without having more information, but I think it's a pretty critical question for Luke Donald to, to figure out. Yeah, and just like this idea that like we can't we're not talking about Ludwig Aberg about what he is which is like an incredibly promising up-and-coming young player right you know captain's pick wild card sort of we're talking about him like he's John Rahm just in you know two years early or whatever right right yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. No, it's like incredible pressure that we're like not checking ourselves doing and you know but it, I don't know Joel what do you think am I reading too much into this no, although I was trying to like uh, what Shane just mentioned, like 
yeah, maybe putting him with Rory puts a, a, a bigger target on his back. Weirdly, I think there's been so much. I mean, these guys live in an echo chamber, right? They the players are very well aware of the discourse around Aberg. So, I mean, do you put him with someone like McIntyre or Fitzpatrick? Or uh, I, I, I understand maybe there's a certain uh, Rory and Aram. It's 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 a certain amplification that cannot be duplicated with anybody else, but. The, the hype around Aberg is so loud and so prominent that's only going to grow next week that unless it's someone like a Justin Rose or, yeah, maybe even Nikolai Ho- even but even the Hogarth thing, you're not going to put a 22 and 23-year-old out there together. I think that's kind of a recipe for disaster, a seemingly recipe for disaster. So, um, yeah, it, it's a good point. Like, what would be the best for Aberg to get the most out of his, most out of what he can do next week? Um, it'll be, it'll be, I think it's honestly one of the bigger questions Europe has, because even though he is the wild card, he's already kind of being elevated to this guy. They're kind of counting on now that could just be us, but for, for a team that was really supposed to be dragging in eight, nine guys in the, in the last three or four, there were big question marks. He's now kind of being elevated as, Hey, like this is someone they're really counting on if they're going to pull this off. So yes, yes. That's what I mean. You know, and that's, and where it's like, if, if Aber goes one, one, and one, so he plays three matches, wins one, halves one, loses one, by all accounts, a solid rookie Ryder Cup record. Like, I think the hype has gotten so much that they would that there's a portion that would be a little disappointed by that outcome, which is just it's mind boggling. It's amazing to me. Um, Anyway, we've we've dissected these BMW Championship pairings and how and their potential Ryder Cup pairings ramification enough. Um, let's quick take a quick jump over to the Fortinet, where uh, just we I think it was just JT and Homer were the only two in the field, I believe. Um, and it was good to see Justin Thomas playing well. He's you know like you said he's one of the he, he's one of the few making competitive start this close to the Ryder Cup, and he finished fifth. 69 67 65 72 and i feel like this was you know in some ways inevitable but also exactly what the doctor ordered um and also interesting considering all the news that has come out about the changes he's been making to his kind of you know backroom staff effectively um joel do you have any insight into what's going on in thomas world and whether it's you know whether this is trending in a good direction for him heading into rome yeah, I mean, obviously you would like to see that that Sunday score a little bit better, especially with the the setup we kind of saw. But at the same time, like as easy as Napa was playing the first two or three days, like look at those those final round scores. Not a lot of guys went low for the most part. So um, yeah, for for a guy who's it's been a while since he's been in contention. Weirdly, I think this is this is such mental gymnastics, but like weirdly finishing like where he did was maybe a little bit better than winning uh just in the idea that there's not going to be this extra hype because so i think this is exactly what you want to right just to not only see him with good form but to get his confidence up I, I think that's something we can't we take for granted like these these guys the, the, it's funny like what we see on a week-to-week basis on pro game is just so different from what we know as golf and yet the one thing connector is the crisis of confidence whether you're like a 15 handicapper or you're one of the best five ten players in the world everyone goes through their stretches where the conviction is gone. And Justin Thomas is the guy who for better, for worse. In fact, I think he actually has some detractors and fans. He was a very cocky guy. Right. And that cockiness was gone the past three or four months to kind of get that conviction back. Not only a little bit, what we saw at Wyndham, I know he still fell short, but like kind of making that run and feeling, Hey, I know the scores aren't there, but like, I swear, I feel like I'm on the right path. This was more of validation of he is going the right way. Uh, and to kind of get that confidence going into an event where, I mean, that is the undercurrent of the, of his success, right? The fact that Justin Thomas gets in, he thinks he is the best guy in the world. He's ready to take you down. That's what's, that's one of the reasons that has made him such good at this event. To have him now kind of feeling himself again, I think that's exactly what this is. That What we saw in Napa is exactly, if you're a United States backer, what you needed to see. Yeah, Shane, what uh, uh, you agree with that? 
terms of JT, or you, we think we shouldn't read too much into it? No, no, I think so. You know, he played well at the Wyndham, um, you know, barely missed the playoffs, and that was obviously a good sign, and I think probably pretty critical um, to the, I think, you know, if he had shot in the 80s or something, he might not have made the team. But yeah, this is this is great. I mean, there's just no, obviously it's great, right? Seeing Seeing JT do that is great from a number of perspectives. First of all, for the team, which is the biggest concern, and for his own form. This is, you know, again, the generational best player in U.S. team match play. Also, from a PR perspective, I mean, they would never admit it, but it's it's got to be nice for Zach Johnson that he went out, made the cut, you know, then did much better than making the cut, had a chance to win, and played three really, really good rounds. So, yeah, it kind of takes the smoke off him a little bit that, you know, you're looking at this and going, okay. And it's always with the discourse, it's so interesting because it became a live versus PGA Tour thing, and I think on Twitter people were – kind of knocking the field at the Fortinet a little bit. The, you know, the live side of things were going, wow, well, who cares what he did? It's a, you know, look, it's a crappy field. You're bragging about this type deal. You know, it's, Keegan still deserved it over him and all these other people still deserved it over him. And maybe they did, but, um, you know, I don't agree with that. But, you know, if you if you have that argument, it's not like this disproves it. However, it does become a little bit harder to criticize when you see what he did. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, I expected this to happen. I think Zach Johnson expected it to happen. All systems go right for Italy. I mean, I think it's it's cool. This is this Ryder Cup is cool. You got two good captains. You got two teams who seem to be both on really good form, uh, with a few exceptions here and there. I don't know. I this this I I think we may be in for a great Ryder Cup of the kind we haven't seen since Medina. No, I agree. Uh, I agree. I'm excited. And JT making one of the two. Uh, one of the two most interesting equipment changes heading into the Ryder Cup too. He lengthened his driver shaft by half an inch, I believe. He averaged 340 the last I saw to give him some extra distance, which is super cool. John Rahm was the other notable equipment change. He put in, he swapped out his putter. Um, so he was using a white hot OG Rossi with no lines on top. Now he's using just the same model, but in a black finish. I don't know if the insert's the same. So it was interesting to see when players make these last minute tweaks, especially to two pivotal clubs and they're driving their putter. Um, but before we go, I did want us to dive a little deep into, you know, we've had each team making trips over to Marco Simone over the past couple of weeks. Um, the European team on the Monday before Wentworth and then the weekend before that for the US team. And it seems like there's starting to be some comments coming out about the course, about how it's being set up, about how the rough is really thick. Pete Cowan was quoted yesterday as saying that the course is a disgrace because of the way it's set up. I mean, what, I mean, what are we starting to hear inch out? And I guess what's the logic behind some of these these maneuvers that uh, that the that the that the host team has been conducting at the course? It all comes down to the stats, guys. At this point, right? We always talk about how the stereotypes they don't do they really apply anymore, right? Does does thickening the rough and narrowing the fairways really favor Europe at this point anymore, or have the styles become so global in nature that everybody's basically playing the same game, and you're gonna hurt everybody equally. It's hard to say it's, but again, I don't think they would do it without a good reason. And you get to this informational brick wall where you go, Oh, well, we don't know why they're doing it. Right. And maybe we'll know next year or after the Ryder cup, or maybe not for 20 years when somebody writes a book, but there's gotta be a reason they're doing this. Um, they, they clearly fear a certain aspect of the American game, right? The reason that they're kind of making this rough. So, so incredibly gritty and thick, um, they clearly feel that narrow fairways benefit them. It did in Paris. We had the same discussions in Paris where we're going, does it really, you know, okay, yeah, you got Bryson and you got Phil and guys who bomb, but does it really favor the Europeans? It obviously did, right? I mean, the course setup murdered the Americans in Paris, and I think they're, you know, fairly confident that it's going to do the same thing uh, in Rome. And you, U.S. has to prove them wrong. It's just like the thing of they haven't won in Europe in 30 years. They, It's on them to prove them wrong. Before they do... Uh, you know, we just have to assume the Europeans are correct in almost everything they do at home because they haven't placed a foot wrong in, in three decades. The one thing I find interesting about all this is there's all this talk about how their fairways are just incredibly tight. They've tightened them all up and they've grown out the rough. 
And um, I think then that leads us to the conclusion that was true in the past that was, well, that's because European guys actually hit the ball straighter. So they're going to be rewarded for hitting fairways. But in reality, what ends up happening is like the Bryson thing at winged foot in 2020, where when you narrow the fairways so much that the effect is that nobody hits fairways mm-hmm. basically and which then flips the dynamic back on its head which is if nobody's hitting fairways then the people who have the advantage are the longer hitters because everyone's just roasting it as far as they can into the rough it's like this weird screwy dynamic so it, it doesn't actually favor the brian Harmons of the world right um it or even like the max homers like an above average distance guy but an accurate guy um it, it favors the like nikolai hogards or the rory's who like they hit a decent amount of fairways don't get me wrong they're just good overall drivers of the ball but they their main asset when it comes off the tee is distance and so it's really just like a bomb and gouge contest and the further the better in a bomb and gouge contest right um and i kind of think based on the sounds at least i'm hearing from within the team and stuff that that's kind of the logic here they aren't trying to reward like people who are hitting fairways they when you look at rory and aberg and ram and hogard played into this with his captain's pick and all these guys like they they have the bombers European in many ways, Hovland, and they're, they, like I said, they hit fairways, but they can roast it, I think, overall driving distance-wise. And I think that that's why you start, you're going to see heavy, gnarly, rough, and that's the logic uh, driving it. But I don't know, Joel, what, what are you hearing? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the biggest thing you take away uh, what happened. If you're trying to learn lessons from 2018, it was really only Justin Thomas saw the course before... Ryder Cup week, right? Uh, he was the only one that played in the French Open. No one, they didn't make a team scouting trip. Just and one of the recurring things when players, when the U.S. was kind of complaining afterwards, man, they just kind of tricked the rough up. You know, I think even McGinley kind of said on the broadcast, like, listen, if they would have came over, they would have saw this is how the course played has historically played. You know, this, they, we really didn't do much to it. Um, so I think in that vein, having nine guys kind of come over and know what they're know what they're going to see, I think is beneficial. Um, but it, it does kind of lead to a, a bigger discussion of, and Shane, I'd like to get your thoughts. This really has become, as much as we like to talk about, it, I mean, we've spent the last couple months diving into this. You know, seven of the last eight and 10 of the last 12 home teams have won. It's really become the deciding factor of the Ryder Cup is who's playing home. And for all the reasons we've kind of discussed on past podcasts, that the home team can really manipulate a course to its advantages or, it, not only to, to strengthen its strengths, but also to kind of negate its weaknesses. Would you like to see the Ryder Cup kind of go to the President's Cup model, where there's a neutral set course setup, or do do you like this idea that a, a home team can kind of build their course to their wants? In theory, I like it, but I don't like a series of home blowouts over and over and over again. And I, 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 we may have talked about this before. Maybe there was another podcast. Maybe I was cheating on you guys with a different podcast, but the, um, the home field advantage of having the crowd on your side is so massive in a sport where people aren't used to partisan fans, right? There's no, there's no such thing in a golf tournament as the home team. These, these guys play and sure there's more popular players and there's least popular players, but for the most part, everybody's cheering for them, and they don't have people cheering against them. There's not like, oh, God, well, we're going to uh, Pebble Beach. Boy, that's a tough West Coast crowd, and Keegan Bradley's going to get razzed all, all week, right? They don't do that. Now, we look at other team sports. Even where they're used to it, there is a you know massive, statistically provable advantage to being the home team, and that all that's based on is having a crowd of people cheering against you. It doesn't happen in, in golf until the Ryder Cup or the President's Cup, and it's a really, really, really big deal. And we've seen it have this massive effect as the Ryder Cup has gotten bigger and more popular. And of course, now it's at a peak popularity where it's only getting bigger. It's never going to change. And what that has produced is a bunch of home teams winning. So when you look at that and and winning by huge margins, we should add, you know, all the way back to Medina and Medina, despite a fluke on Sunday, if not for that, could have been the latest in the series of, of home blowouts. So we've got four in a row right now. And uh, if it's five in a row, I think you have to strip the home team of all other advantages and say, 
we're not going to change the home field advantage of the crowd. That's that's part and parcel of the Ryder Cup, and nobody would want to do that. But that is such a massive benefit that everything else has got to go away because you give them anything else, and it's just adding to the heap of things that make this home team uh, so, 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 so uh, favored over the visitors. And that includes course setup. Yes, it should go to a neutral team. Um, it includes... Probably that's by far and away the biggest one, but like literally everything else on a granular level should be neutralized because otherwise you're just never going to have the visiting team win. And I think, you know, America has a really good shot to win this time, but it's, I, I, I have been predicting America for a very long time to go and win this Ryder Cup, but everything I'm seeing lately takes me back to like, it just seems even now. It just seems even on paper in terms of the players. And then you're kind of a fool if you pick anything but the home team. So I think push comes to shove. I'm being tilted toward predicting that the Europeans will win. And, you know, I'm sure we'll write a prediction piece, you know, on Wednesday or Thursday when we get there. I can't see going against the Euros at this point. And if it does play out that way, yeah, I think you need to go back because we need some close Ryder Cups. It's no fun to have the blowouts over and over. Oh, man, it's such an interesting... I, I guess, like, I just... I, I kind of like the trickery. I like being able to talk about it. I like being able to stack the deck for the home team, both America and Europe. I don't... I guess I don't fully buy into the idea that Ryder Cups are too hard for the away team to win. You know, I kind of think when you really unpack why away teams haven't won, um, it's mostly explained by just the dysfunctional U.S. team dynamic in the back room you know like the the lack of you know, all the tactical errors that captains and stuff have made over the years right can i think explains a lot of like why bernard langer was just <laughs> his Ryder cup team came over to america and just blew him out right like things like weird things like that happening um i guess it's something i've got keep my eye on i'm generally i just get a little squeamish when we start talking about like adjusting the rules to make it more watchable entertaining stuff um i know that's like pretty common practice in america right just with like in the like nfl does it all the time i'm sure nba does i don't know much about it whatever mlb just did it right like oh how can we adjust i guess it's a little rarer in england like soccer almost never changes its rules and when it does it's only to fix like a glaring error so maybe i'm just stuck in that mindset but i don't know i just feel like you start making these changes to this incredible event, then it's just going to backfire in weird, unexpected ways. There's always these unintended consequences, and then you have to fix those, and then you have to get more heavy-handed with fixing those. And then it's like, I kind of like the the bit of trickery that just goes on here. And as long as there's trans, as long as it's transparent, like you're letting the team, the other team, know in advance what's happening. You know, I, like I would be against the U.S. team not being able to play this course in advance, for instance. But like mm -hmm. outside of stuff like that, I don't know. I guess I'm more laissez-faire when it comes to it. I, I feel like we just got a, a look at the inner mindset of why the British Empire has fallen apart. Well, you know, we're not going to change things. We're just going to keep <laughs> it. <laughs> not changing modern times. Um, no, and you're right. And, and to be fair, it's it has there have been steps towards a more level playing field in the sense of, you know, they're not supposed to be making as many changes during the week. Everything's supposed to kind of be set in stone the Sunday night compared to, I think Shane, you brought it up at a previous podcast, Azinger like going way kind of crossing the line a bit in terms of how, how he was setting the hollow up. So I think it is, it has gotten better. I, I do just sometimes wonder though, like is, Luke, I, I agree with you. We, we, like, if you're trying to explain some of the missteps of past U.S. failures away, we kind of do just chalk it up to leadership faux pas or chemistry issues, or you know what, they were just weren't as good on paper as we thought. But it does seem to, if we keep having these issues or keep having these same conversations, like, all right, are there really these many leadership issues, or are we just kind of retrofitting that take to explain? you know, not explaining the obvious of, Hey, if this really just comes down to home field advantage, like, is there too much of an advantage being at home? Um, and, and Shane, I kind of agree with you where I, I do think there is a little bit of this dynamic of having people cheer for you and not cheer for you that even though it's inherent in other sports, we don't see it in golf at the same time. It's not like going in Europe even or playing in Europe as an American and vice versa. 
it's not like you're an SEC team playing an away game, right? You're not having your manhood question on every play. You're not having people go nuts. Like, you know, what? it's it's still quiet when you hit the ball, right? Like, yes, one one voice, one dissenting voice can really sound like nails on a chalkboard, but it's still pretty comfortable environment compared to other away confines. You know, that makes sense. So I, I know there is something to be said about having crowds behind you and even just maybe not having that, that energy behind you can be something, but it's not like these guys, it's not that hostile environment for the most part for these guys. I know every, every Ryder Cup example has, or Ryder Cup has examples. And again, it only takes a couple knuckleheads to make a scene. I just still feel like though, it's not like compared to other sports, maybe I'm, maybe that's my fallacy as I'm comparing to other sports. Uh, golf crowds are still at the end of the day, golf crowds are not, they're still rooting for both teams. You know, they're, they're still applauding good shots. Um, I, I don't know. I just, I, I worry, I worry. I, I love the fact that fans are so part of the DNA of this event. And I don't want that to change but at the same time. Like I do wonder if this just becomes whoever the home team is, is going to win. Something seems a little off there to me. I would the only little pushback I would give, and you kind of did the pushback yourself a little bit, anticipating it. But um, you know, I walked with Rory McIlroy at Hazeltine, and I, I wouldn't know what to call that except hostile. <laughs> you know, what I mean, it was it was pretty rough, and and the difference a little bit. You know, yeah, you're not going to have a wall of noise when you're hitting like an SEC football game, but at an SEC football game, the fans are at a distance, and you've got a team behind you. You know, in in golf, you're all by yourself and you're neck and neck with you. You're you're right in the throngs. You know, so in in a lot of ways, even if right, we could say ninety percent of the gallery is very respectable or ninety nine percent even that it does stick out. I mean, it really does stick out when somebody kind of comes after you. And even it doesn't even have to be personal. Like the Rory stuff got really personal, and and people speak out against that. And you know, I think some guy got kicked out that day. But it's just like you know. 5,000 people yelling, go Europe on every hole. If you're an American and they're right next to you, you know, it's, that's like, they just don't experience that on the same level. And you're right. It's not, it, it doesn't get to the point. There's not drunken people, uh, you know, on the verge of assaulting you or something like that. Like, like you get with these crazy soccer crowds in Europe or an, or an American football crowd, but it's so close. It's so close and personal. And I just can't emphasize enough how unused to that they are. So that, that would be my only pushback. You make a good point, but I would say there are times when just a little bit of that stuff can go a long way because again, everything's just right there. It's, it's a crush on you in these high stakes, high pressure moments. Yeah, no, it all makes sense. Um, I guess we should revisit this post Roderick cup, but I'm expecting this one to be a close one. Because I think that the U.S. team is stronger on paper, but the home team advantage. If there is a home team blowout, um, then it probably is a. Then suddenly, this seems like a data point which you can't ignore. Um, but I'm not expecting it to be a home team blowout. I'm expecting it to be a, a close, strong match. Um, all right. Well, the I guess that concludes this episode of the Radical Radicals podcast. And next time we do this, boys, we'll be in Rome, I believe. Uh, is, uh, any any parting thoughts with uh, with Italy about? I don't think I've had Sambuca since I saw you guys in England. So looking forward to many rounds in, in person in a couple of days. Should be a blast. That's right. We'll get Shane's limoncello too. Are you excited, Shane? I'm very excited. I think yeah. We need uh, we need to figure out our restaurants. We need to get our game plan going here. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's going to be great. And it's it's amazing to me when something like this that you've been thinking about for so long is finally here, it almost feels unreal in some way. You're like, no, the Ryder cup is always going to be in the distance. It's never actually going to be played. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be a thing. I'm going to be excited to go to in a million years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're never actually going to Italy, but here it is. Here it is. In one week we'll be in Italy in two weeks. The whole thing will be over. It's crazy. That's right. That's right. Um, well, until then, thanks for, thanks for listening. Tune in wherever you get your pods. Probably should have said that up front and we'll see you next time.